President Doe called me and said, listen, you have to do something for me. And I said, what is it? He said, you have to do all you can to convince those people to fix the computers so that the NDPL can get 51% in every constituency. This was the electronic school board where you just put in your vote as you put in your vote a record. But he wanted it to be done, the computers to be designed in a way that the NDPL will get 51% in every constituency. I said to him, well, it's impossible and very difficult for me as a private businessman to undertake such a project. But anyway, uh, let me talk to the manufacturers of the machinery and see if, if they will be able to do that. And I talked to, I had the, the contract was being done by Ivan, I mean, by Manning Control Systems in, in, in Sussex, England. Ivan Manning um, was my classmate in Switzerland. We did our graduate program together, and he did computer science. And he had opened this small computer company in Sussex. Uh, his father had opened that company for him, so I gave him the contract. And he said to me, when I mentioned it to him, he said, yes. I said, can it be done? He said, yes, it can be done. And I said, uh, uh, can we, uh, I mean, will you do it? He said, no, I wouldn't do it. I said, why? He said, well, because uh, my father has uh, invested his life savings to set up this insurance company for me. And I do not want to take any such chances. He said, because you would not have brought this business to me if the biggest computer company in England was still operating. The biggest computer company in England has been closed down by the British Board of Standards. Even though they made $50 million, but they've been closed down. And I said, why? He said, because they did the same thing you are requesting me to do for the Shagari election in Nigeria. So they have been closed down by the British Board of Standards. So I'm not going to take that risk because it, 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 it's, it's not going to be a secret. So I called President Doe. I said, listen, my man, the people say they can't do this thing. So we have to work out something. Um, he said, well, off, offer, them, uh, offer them money. And I said, well, money is not going to solve it. Then he said, but then cancel the contract. I said, if I cancel the contract, the government is not going to pay me any money because the agreement in the contract and the letter of guarantee given to me by the central bank says that if I do not perform the contract, they are not going to pay me. And I've invested a lot of, we have pre-financed the project to a certain extent. And so... Uh, he said, well, cancel the con uh, I mean, he was, you know, uh, he spoke, canceled it, the D contract uh, and come back to Liberia. And I said, well, I'll see, I'll see what I can do that. But I thought for about two days while I was in England, I was uh, in my flat and I thought for about two days. I said, well, uh, there's no way I'm not, I, well, I called Ivan Manny and I said, listen, Manny, if I cancel this contract, what am I going to lose? He said, if you, can't, if you cancel the contract and I buy all the software and the hardware, I, I don't need the software, but if I buy the hardware and everything from you, you're going to lose about $140,000. And I said, well, I'm not going to lose that kind of money because uh, somebody wants me to do something dubious. So I called Samuel Doe that night and I said to him, listen, um, the guys say they're going to do it, but you have to pay $150,000. And he said, all right, come for the money. And so I left in June and came back to, to Liberia on British Airways, and I went to the executive mansion. When I got to the mansion, uh, he gave me a briefcase. When I opened the briefcase, he had $150,000 in the briefcase. And so I said, but why don't you use this money to campaign in Liberia as a small uh, electorate and see if you can win the elections? He said, no, the people are up to something here. These politicians are here up to something, and it, it won't work that way. So now we come to one of the first of many 
highly suspicious episodes in the career of Charles Taylor because things really start to come to a head in 1985. Taylor is in prison at the Plymouth County Correctional Facility in Massachusetts, seemingly awaiting extradition. Meanwhile, General Thomas Quiangpa is busy on the east coast of the United States planning a coup. But before all that comes to a head, the elections of 1985 occur. And I'll just read a brief summary that Han gives over how that election turned out. Preparations for the general election took place after the new constitution of Liberia was approved via the adoption of a national referendum on the 3rd of July, 1984. Next, the PRC was dissolved and replaced by the Interim National Assembly in July 1984 and included all former PRC members and 35 civilians representing Liberia's 13 counties. The Special Elections Commission, CECOM, should have then facilitated a free and fair general election. However, CECOM set up barriers to exclude specific political parties from participating in the election. They demanded high-cost registration fees or excluded particular parties, such as the United People's Party, UPP, headed by Gabriel Bacchus Matthews, and the Liberian People's Party, headed by Amos Sawyer. Doe accused Sawyer of plotting a coup to establish a, quote, socialist republic in Liberia with the aid of foreign countries, including three African states. To avoid any interference from the USSR, Doe ordered the closure of the Soviet embassy. James Keogh Bishop who became U.S. Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary to Liberia, noted that the U.S. government had, quote, persuaded the Doe government that they, the USSR, were working with some of Doe's opponents. Similarly, the U.S. government had also, quote, persuaded Doe to expel the Libyans by convincing him that they were involved in a conspiracy against him. With four political parties and around 900,000 registered voters, the general election took place on October 15, 1985, CECOM reported serious fraud and irregularities during the election, and a 50-member committee was established to investigate complaints. On the 29th of October, CECOM declared Samuel K. Doe of the National Democratic Party of Liberia the winner of the election with around 51% of the votes, which was enough to avoid a runoff. So yeah, Samuel K. Doe is declared the winner of the elections in October of 1985, with the full endorsement and backing of the U.S. government, despite there being widespread allegations of fraud and vote rigging. So that doesn't seem to bother basically the Reagan administration, obviously. This is actually one of the sort of corrupt aspects of the story that is widely acknowledged. And I think even people like Herman Cohen have more or less admitted to it that they absolutely knew this or this election was rigged and honestly probably assisted in rigging it. But because Doe was still such a staunch U.S. Cold War ally and he had kicked out the Soviets, kicked out the Libyans, basically the Americans decided, fuck it, let's give Doe another term. And so that happened in October 1985. And just the next month, two very major events would happen that would have tremendous consequences for the rest of the decade and beyond. The first thing, which we'll get back to in a second more at length, is at the end of November 1985, H. Boima Fumbula and General Thomas Quiangpa launch an armed insurrection across the border into Liberia to overthrow Samuel Doe. 
But before we talk about that and its aftermath, just about two weeks before Kuyongpa makes his move, Charles Taylor is still sitting in the Plymouth County Correctional Facility in Massachusetts. And on one night in November 1985, he escapes and disappears. Now, this is a huge sticking point, I think, across the different narratives. And we're going to go over a few different of the uh, Rashomonic perspectives of what happened with this prison break. But almost everybody in the mainstream, I would say, acknowledges that this prison break is extremely sus. It's not every day that a foreign political figure just sort of uh, shimmies out of a window on a bunch of sheets that have been tied together and runs off and escapes the feds and et cetera, et cetera. But Charles Taylor managed to do that. Now, I think, you know, if we're going to evaluate what actually happened, maybe we should start with the testimony of the man himself because he was asked at his war crimes trial decades later, how did you manage to escape? And this is what he said. No. It's that Houdini episode that I want to talk to you about now. Okay. How did you get out of jail, Mr. Taylor, without a Monopoly-type get-out-of-jail card? How did you manage it? <clears throat> well, I, I must say that I will be able to explain to a great extent how I got out. There's some of the details I don't know, but I'll explain to the judges. While in prison, this whole episode is being developed. Episode, I mean, the, uh, the, the planning and training are going on in Sierra Leone. Harry Newell comes to me and he informs me of the details. I then ask him to, to, to state to General Kuwampa to ask the United States government to release me. Why? Because of the contact that I am told that General Kuwampa has with the government, well, since there is this diplomatic stalemate, if you have sufficient contacts at the level that Kuwampa was dealing with, he could have said to them, look, release Mr. Taylor, because it is apparent that they would not have sent me anyway. I'm in jail about three, two to three days I don't know the date of the actual attack on Monrovia. I do not know. But I'm released from jail about two to three days before the attack. As I arrive in New York City, the attack is already gone. Uh, about uh, three to four weeks before, uh, one of the prison uh, guards uh, in a supervisory uh, position came and told me that I would be leaving the prison. And he wanted to find out that if I was let out of the prison, if I could actually get out of the United States as quickly as possible because upon leaving, I would have to leave the United States. I said to him, I said, well, it would be a little problem, but I will get to my wife and ask her to, uh, you know, to raise uh, a certain amounts of money that would be made available to me if and when I got out. Now, that was a little sticky because my wife and I are not living together. I 
I have now moved to Boston where I'm arrested. I'm with this girlfriend, Agnes, who later becomes my wife. But my wife, Tupi, and I had bought a piece of land in New Hampshire. So I had to authorize her to sell the land to raise some money that when I got out of jail, I would be able to do something. I, the Plymouth County House of Correction is both a minimum and a maximum security facility. The minimum security facility of that jail, uh, you have people who are about to get out, they go work in the fields, come in, go out. It's virtually for people that, you know, who have no good reason to get out of jail because in that facility you are there. Within the building, you have to walk from maximum security to so many gates to get into minimum. And the minimum side of the jail is really minimum. Low walls, and people walk out and do what they have to do. On the date that I reported back to them, to the guard, and told him that I had arranged my wife, and after she assured me that she had sold the land and had some money, we had to really give the land a rock bottom price. I told him that we had some money. He verified my passport. Uh, he verified that I could get out. I can remember one evening at about 10, he came, opened my cell. It was during lockdown time and escorted me from the maximum security side through server gates to the minimum security side where there were two other detainees there standing. They, they were already out. They had already, I don't know who cut it, but I think the guys had made these arrangements. Those two guys and myself with the guard, this one guard, and I do not know and will not lie if he was operating with anybody else, but I believe that he had to be operating with somebody else. I was taken out. We got to the window. These guys took a sheet. We tied it on the bar in a very short distance and we came down, got over the fence. There was a waiting car outside. There were two guys in the car. These other two guys and myself got in the car and drove and their instructions, the guys who were driving the car's instructions were to get me as far as New York where I had told them I wanted to go. They drove me from Boston. We stopped in Providence, Rhode Island. My wife came, brought the money. She was in a second car and the two cars drove. The two guys that were driving the car insisted that I not drive with her. I should stay in their car just in case we were stopped by state troopers. I followed those instructions. I do not know those guys. They never identified themselves to me. I had never known them before. They drove us all the way to New York. I got out of the car and I showed them that would be okay. And then I met a sister of mine, a half sister of mine, and I stayed at her apartment. Those guys, plus the two guys that broke out of the jail with me, I have not seen or heard from them today. Now, what do I mean by I do not know the full story? It is my assumption 
and I want to be very clear about this, because I did not pay any money. I did not know the guys that picked me up. I stayed in New York for about, as I'm in New York, the coup is going on in Liberia. I cannot get a flight out of New York on time. I was not hiding. All this nonsense about being such, I was not hiding. I did not get a flight out. I was still in New York when Jerome Kurumbai was captured. I stayed in New York for about two or three weeks. It was decided that by my sister that since things had gotten out of shape, by this time, every news agency is reporting that Charles Taylor has escaped from jail. I drive on Interstate 95, not hiding, from New York after about two weeks to Washington, D.C. I spent a couple of days in Washington, D.C. visiting a friend of mine, the late Eric Scott. From there, I drive all the way to Atlanta, Georgia, board a plane, fly to Texas, spend time there with uh, uh, some family, friends down there for about another month, and then go on to Mexico and fly to, to West Africa. All right, so there you have it from his own mouth. He believes he doesn't know all the details, but the U.S. government obviously arranged for him to quote-unquote escape from that prison so that he could travel back to Africa. You also heard him say that he was still hiding out in New York just about two weeks after he escaped when Thomas Kwiangpa launched his ultimately unsuccessful coup against Doe. There's a lot going on there. And just to be straight with you, dear listener, up front, I mostly believe Charles Taylor's version of this story because the alternatives almost get into a little bit of magic bullet, everything is a coincidence territory. Namely, the testimony that was provided in Johnny Dwyer's American Warlord, which, you know, I know I'm beating up on it a lot in today's episode, but it does have good information. Unfortunately, it has some passages that uh, I think do a disservice to the narrative. But this one is worth pointing out because Dwyer, to his credit, actually went and tracked down somebody. He tracked down one of the other two men that Taylor said escaped with him. And he had his own story of how it happened. This is what Dwyer writes. To return to Liberia a free man, Taylor needed first to break jail in Massachusetts and avoid extradition. Throughout his later political career, he would offer differing accounts of his escape, varying in detail and attribution, but always serving the same purpose, to cultivate his own mystery and lend himself an intangible legitimacy. In 1992, he explained vaguely to the American novelist Dennis Johnson, who had been sent by the New Yorker to profile the young warlord, quote, I wouldn't even be in this country today if not for the CIA. My escape from the American jail in Boston... I think they must have arranged that. One night I was told that the gate to my cell wouldn't be locked, that I could walk anywhere. I walked out of jail, down the steps, out into America. Nobody stopped me. In another version, Taylor recounted that a guard simply escorted him to the room where two other inmates had already completed sawing through the bars. I don't know who cut it, he said, but I think the guards had made these arrangements. But according to one of the men who broke Taylor from jail, the truth was less fantastic. 
There was no official involvement, either from the government or prison officials. Instead, Taylor had arranged with another inmate, 22-year-old Thomas Duvall, to engineer the escape. The jail, which was overcrowded and nearly a century old, had suffered multiple escapes in the decade prior. Duvall worked as the runner, the inmate responsible for doling out ice cream sandwiches and microwavable cheeseburgers from the prison canteen. As such, he had access to the span of the prison. The job gave him the opportunity to learn every inch of the place, as he recalled. Most important, he could map the daily rituals that made the jail function. Nearly 15 years Duvall's senior, Taylor was fatherly to him rather than patronizing, unlike a lot of Plymouth's old-timers. The two men spent hours together boxing and playing gin. Duvall developed something personal for his friend. I also felt sympathy for Charlie, he later said. The man had children. And so he told Taylor, getting out of here is no different than planning a score. The escape was planned for September 15th. Duvall had arranged for several high-tempered hacksaw blades to be smuggled in through inmates working on the jail's farm. Early in the day of the escape, Taylor's wife, Tupi, visited, delivering cash and mail to him. Tupi, who knew that her family connections to both Taylor and Kuyongpa could make her a target in Doe's Liberia, had moved to Rhode Island, not far from the jail. The two men, with a teenage prisoner, Anthony Rodriguez, planned to break out from a second-floor laundry room, which had been converted to a cell. After dinner, the three drifted back to the third tier, detouring to the laundry room. Duvall removed the bars, and the men clambered out the window, dropping onto a roof below. From there, they hopped down into the courtyard. Duvall had timed the patrol of the guard on his walk around the prison's perimeter and had figured out how much time they had to get to the fence. As they were about to climb it, Taylor stopped. He'd had second thoughts. That moment of hesitation had huge implications for his future. Taylor would later argue he was breaking jail for a greater good, to return to Liberia to oust Doe and help the nation return to an electoral democracy. He would slip out of the United States, he later claimed, via Mexico, and eventually land back in West Africa. Others maintained he flew from New York on a false passport. But on that night in September, an uncertain future lay in front of him. The guy showed fear, Duvall remembered. It was too late, he told Taylor. I ain't pushing your fat ass through those bars again. So that is testimony from Taylor's former jailmate, Thomas Duvall, who claims had nothing to do with the government whatsoever. I just planned the perfect jailbreak and got Taylor to go along with it because we were friends and we liked each other. Now, as you heard from Taylor's own testimony, it wasn't just that they were able to get out of the prison, but there was a car with two individuals waiting for him to pick him up and the other guys as well, right outside of the jail. So unless Taylor, I guess, is lying and, you know, he said that I'd never seen these men before in my life and they seemed like U.S. government agents. Uh, they drove, I believe, to Rhode Island where they met up with Tupi and then they drove in two cars to New York and they specifically told him, I don't know if it's just a ambient racism thing or if there was a uh, an EPB out on Taylor but they said we don't want you driving with your wife in case you get pulled over so you're going to ride separately and then she's going to tail you in a second car and that's how they got to New York I mean a lot of people have kind of pushed this narrative that this is just part of the myth-making process of Charles Taylor of building up his legitimacy as a man with connections but as we're going to see shortly 
This is a man who had connections. Also, the planning beforehand, the timing of this also happening right around the time of the election, which Doe fraudulently won, and then happening right on the eve of Thomas Kwiyunkpa's failed coup, which pops off, I believe, near the end of November 1985. While Taylor is still, we think, according to his account, hiding out in New York. Then he drove down I-95, hung out in Atlanta for a while, and then he flew to Texas, where he stayed with some relatives, and then drove to Mexico, where he flew back to Ghana, right in the aftermath of the Cuyongpa coup. So let's talk about that for a second, because it appears, and I think other people like Emmanuel Bowyer, who was the information minister under Doe, but I think later fell out with him, really one of the most, uh, I think, uh, captivating speakers of everyone who testified at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He, I believe, talked a little bit about, and if I can find the audio, I'll put it in here, but he talked about how there were these groups of Liberian expats, mostly on the East Coast of the U.S., which had become increasingly dissatisfied with Doe and were already engaging in uh, certain preparations, maybe, to back Thomas Quiangpa's coup. But let's see what happened. Han summarizes it right here. Two weeks after the fraudulent election results were made public, Thomas Quiangpa and H. Boyma Fonbala led a military coup to remove Doe from power. They established the National Patriotic Forces of Liberia, the NPFL, in Sierra Leone, from where they launched an armed insurgency into Liberia on November 12, 1985. Fonbula remained in Sierra Leone, while Quiangpa led nine Liberian and 20 Sierra Leonean militants to Monrovia with the intention of removing Doe from power. Early that morning, one faction of the insurgents captured Elwa radio station, and from a pre-recorded tape, Kwiangpa's voice broadcasted nationwide that the patriotic forces under his command had taken power and Doe was in hiding. 22 minutes after nine, in other words. And this announcement from General Thomas Kwiangpa. All patriotic forces of the armed forces of Liberia are hereby ordered to arrest all ministers, deputy ministers, all security forces of the Republic of Liberia, the former chief of staff AFL, Lieutenant General Henry Duba, all other officials of the deposed government of Samuel Doe, and bring them to the executive mansion effective immediately. The patriotic forces advised that there shall be no rioting, no looting. Anyone found in this act shall be or shall face the full force of the law. This is signed by General Thomas Kuyumpa. Once more, all patriotic forces of the armed forces of Liberia Many people in Monrovia believed this to be true and celebrated in the streets, and there were instances of retributions taken against Doe's supporters throughout the country. However, within a few hours, the 1st Infantry Battalion retook the radio station and announced that Doe remained in power. All insurgents were captured and executed, including Kwiangpa. The killing of General Kwiwongpa in Liberia. Tonight, in focus. General Thomas Kwiwongpa is dead. He led Tuesday's coup attempt against Liberia's head of state, Samuel Doe. 
At first, it seemed to be succeeding, but then troops loyal to Doe got the upper hand against the rebels. Reprisals began against people thought to be sympathetic to General Kriwonka. There have been arrests and reports that property has been destroyed and looted. A manhunt was launched for General Kriwonka. Well, now he's been found and killed. Robin White asked Jeff Mutada in Monrovia how it happened. Well, I understand that he was captured about eight miles from the city. And he was captured by Doe's bodyguard, Edward Slanger, who shot him on the spot. The bullet-ridden body was then transported to Monrovia and taken to the Barclay Training Center, where he was put on public view. I learned later that the body was castrated. And shortly after that, head of state Doe went to the radio station, the government station, ELBC, and broadcast to the nation that Kuomba had been captured and killed on the spot by his bodyguard. I learned from some observers around the area that he resisted arrest, and he was shot on the leg twice, put in the back of the jeep, and then later finished off. We all know when the coup took place, he became a commanding general of the armed forces of Liberia, and Doe became the head of state and the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Liberia. I think his common name was CIC. We all remember that. These two generals fell apart. One got demoted, Kumba got demoted. That's another source of satisfaction. I'm not sure if he accepted the demotion, where you were in the barrier hold of and I think on a house arrest. He escaped. I understand he came to this country. I've seen people who told me he was here in Minnesota. Now it was here in Minnesota that he was encouraged to go to Liberia to do the incursion that he did. But the coup failed. What happened? Kuomba was butchered. He was dismembered. And parts of his body were distributed in the streets of Monrovia. During that time, we have taken refuge in one man we used to call Uncle Gay. In fact, we call him Gay. The crime people call Gay Gay. So he was in the military, he was a gill man. So we had gone to his house to seek refuge because we were targeting him as citizens. So we saw him come in with parts of Kuomba in his hand and the blood of Kuomba on his lips. Even though he told us that he did not eat him, but if he hadn't done so, he would have been shot on the spot. So people ate parts of Kuomba in the street in Monrovia, especially the military barracks, any gill soldier or, or crown soldier who did not eat him according to instruction was shot on the spot. Several influential Liberian political activists, such as Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was critical of Doe's administration, were accused of being involved in the coup attempt and arrested. Some were executed. However, Sirleaf was released and relocated to the U.S., where she became involved in the formation of the Association for Constitutional Democracy in Liberia, ACDL. Prince Johnson, the Chief of Defense Intelligence for Operation at the Defense's headquarters in Monrovia, was also accused of being a part of the coup. After an attempt to arrest him, Prince Johnson fled to Ivory Coast, where he became president of the National Patriotic Forces of Liberia, later renamed the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, NPFL, 
which became the most significant rebel army in the 1990s. As with previous coup attempts, there were rumors about CIA involvement in this plot, but H. Boimafambula argues that this is illogical because most of the people behind the coup attempt were pan-Africanists with leftist or nationalist orientations. Doe was anti-communist, and that was the most important aspect for the U.S. government in the mid-1980s. Shortly after the coup attempt, Fonbula was informed by the Sierra Leonean Intelligence Service that the CIA had intercepted the coup plot and passed the information to the government of Liberia. On December 10, 1985, Chester A. Crocker, U.S. Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, confirmed in a statement to the U.S. Subcommittee on African Affairs in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that the U.S. government supported Doe. He further noted that the U.S. government has been, quote, active in each step along the way, encouraging the Liberian authorities to live up to their promise to issue a second Republic of Liberia. The LPP and the UPP were banned from the election because they, quote, proposed socialist programs which had no place in Liberia. Although the, quote, vote was counted behind closed doors without the, re- without the presence of opposition party representatives, the election would be seen as a, quote, democratic experience that Liberia and its friends can use as a benchmark for future elections. Although the Liberian diaspora was lobbying the U.S. Congress in the mid-1980s by exposing corruption and severe human rights violations committed by the Doe administration, the Reagan administration was, quote, determined to keep Liberia as a close ally. Under the leadership of Doe, Liberia played a central role for U.S. military activities in Africa because the U.S. had access to the seaport and airport that allowed the U.S. to send cargo to other parts of Africa, quote, with no questions asked. For example, in 1986, the U.S. was sending military equipment to the anti-communist UNITA rebels in Angola using Robertsfield Airport in Liberia and Kinshasa Airport in Zaire. This project alone justified good relations with both the Doe and Mobutu regimes. So, yeah, Thomas Kuyangpa launches his coup, but it gets undermined because, according to some, according to H. Bwamafambula, who was told by Sierra Leonean intelligence, that the CIA had intercepted the coup plot and told Samuel Doe about it. Now, in Stephen Ellis's book, The Mask of Anarchy, he actually notes uh, elsewhere, you know, kind of talking about uh, Doe's religious fixations, that apparently Doe claimed, and this is interesting for anybody that's listened to our Coney episodes, Doe claimed that uh, the voice of God came into his head in November 1985 and warned him that there was a pending coup. And he sort of used that to bolster kind of the perception of his spiritual power. So it is interesting. Once again, we can see, just like with Coney saying that he gets all of his tips and his instructions from a council of you know nine or 13 spirits, but all the spirits have roles like intelligence officer, munitions officer, and they're all like American for some reason or European. They almost sound like a special forces, like mercenary group that is advising him. And especially when you start to think about the mid 1980s, you know, even things like having a satellite phone that has an intelligence agency on the other, on the other end that could tell you about troop movements that are about to threaten you and then you can get out of the way and then you can spin that to your followers as you're talking to spirits who can tell you i'm not sure that's exactly what was going on here but it it does lend some credence because you have him telling everybody god told me that kuyang po was gonna launch a coup 
meanwhile, Fombola hears that, no, it was the CIA that called him up and told him what was going down, which also, I have to say, this is where the game with the CIA starts to get a little bit complicated because, uh, and we'll see this, as we move into the Civil War period of the 1990s, it's going to get really fucking complicated to tell who is backing what faction. I think there is truth that at this point, 1985, the Reagan administration was still betting heavy on Doe, and they ultimately did not want somebody like Kuyongpa to overthrow him. But if that's the case, I would be very curious to know how much support was Thomas Kuyongpa getting from the U.S.? Because after all, he fled there. He fled the United States after Doe tried to arrest him. And by all accounts of other people who were around then, he was pretty openly organizing with Liberian expats on the East Coast, trying to get together funds and weapons and things like that and international support for his coup. So it does make me wonder if maybe the CIA, the State Department, somebody like that encouraged him after this highly fraudulent election, which the U.S. government co-signed in October 1985, to go in there and take him out and covertly, the U.S. has your back. But then what happens? It looks like perhaps there was a double cross going on. Kuyongpa ends up not just dead, not just murdered, but killed and then has his organs removed and eaten and then has his mangled body paraded through the streets of Monrovia by Doe's soldiers. So going back to our discussion of the Maryland County ritual murders in the late 70s and the kind of fringe prevalence of that in Liberian society, this is a moment where Doe really almost more so than before kind of comes out of the closet with his weaponization of what you could call like taboo ritual magic, basically cannibalism. I think it's Dwyer, I, I might have read the quote earlier, but Dwyer kind of describes it, you know, as the 1980s went on, Doe increasingly relied on two sources of power, the Reagan administration and Juju. And by all accounts, that is true. That's not, uh, I don't think, an exaggeration, though it is very complex. I think part of it, almost in a kind of Aquino tradition, I think some of it is what you would call lesser black magic, a.k.a. psyops, basically striking fear into the hearts of people, into particularly other indigenous ethnic groups, but also the Americo-Liberians, who would certainly find that to be a shocking, brutal practice to engage in openly. But he did have this aura of a spiritual mystique around him. And I do think that uh, by all accounts, you know, uh, I think it was in Lester Hyman's book, he talked about how William Tolbert's heart and liver had been removed and uh, not necessarily eaten, but like ritualistically bitten with certain bite marks on the heart and the liver um, as part of some kind of juju ritual. And so he basically kind of does the same thing to Thomas Kuyongpa, but much more in the open and blatantly as a warning to anybody else that might challenge him. Don't fuck around or you'll get eaten, literally. But America still supports him after this. You know, I mean, that is not the thing that Doe does that makes the United States government and the Reagan administration start to think twice about supporting this guy. As far as they're concerned, maybe they find it somewhat distasteful uh, or maybe bad PR to a certain degree, which it certainly kind of is. 
But no, they're still backing him until, until, and Han summarizes this quite well. After Doe's re-election, after the Kuyongpa coup, Doe starts to change a little bit of his, his policy preferences a little bit. And he starts to read more. And his political philosophy starts to evolve slightly. And it evolves in a direction which the Reagan and then later the Bush administration will not appreciate at all. So Han writes, the relationship between Doe and the U.S. government gradually deteriorated midway through 1986. Emmanuel Bowyer, former Minister of Information in the Doe administration, recalls that the U.S. supported Doe during the election, but afterward, Doe gradually changed from being a, quote, country boy and puppet of the U.S. to eventually resisting U.S. dominance. During his tenure as the head of state, Doe studied under a special program at the University of Liberia and was awarded a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. During his studies, Doe became politically influenced by leftist Pan-African ideology, which was reflected in his dissertation focused on U.S.-Liberia relations. The tensions between Doe and the U.S. government became evident early in 1987. Herman Cohen traveled to Liberia in January 87 with U.S. Secretary of State George Shultz, Assistant Secretary of State Chester Crocker, U.S. Aid Administrator Peter McPherson, and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense James L. Woods. During this trip, Cohen was informed that relations between the Liberian government and the U.S. became complicated. The U.S. had significant concerns about the Liberian government's ability to repay Liberia's debt, and McPherson had proposed assigning a team of retired financial experts to work with the Liberians for two years to get their books and procedures in order. During a reception, which Cohen describes as, quote, an 1820 antebellum southern plantation festival, Schultz, quote, delivered his message about the need for improved economic management. According to Cohen, Doe did not have a clue about Washington realities. He, quote, became hysterical with Secretary Schultz, stating that, I'm your best friend. I kicked out the Libyan embassy that was here, and I support you all over in the UN, even in the non-aligned movement. I'm always one of three or four African countries that's on your side, and all the rest are against you. And what are you doing? You're cutting off our military assistance, and you're lowering our economic assistance. It's all one-sided now. I'm your friend, but you're not my friend anymore. So big turn. So Shipler reported in the New York Times that Schultz had made it clear to Doe that Liberia must make changes in its economic policy. Until then, the U.S. would withhold $10 million in economic aid and $5 million in military aid. About three months later, James Keogh Bishop, the new U.S. ambassador to Liberia, arrived in Monrovia. His mission was to continue the original strategy to, quote, civilize Doe by providing him financial assistance, which would enable his government to organize and manage itself while instructing Doe in political governance, essentially through ambassadorial tutorial. However, his goal was not to make the U.S. government, quote, anathema to a successor government by being perceived as too closely attached to the Doe regime. Toward the end of the 1980s, Liberia was still critical for U.S. interests in Africa. The U.S. Embassy employed around 250 Americans, many of them assigned to the CIA Communications Center. The Military Assistance Advisory Group consisted of six officers and three political officers. Also, there were around 200 Peace Corps volunteers and 5,000 American civilians in the country. 
Bishop was obliged to pay particular attention to the management of the relationship with the Liberian government so the U.S. government, quote, could continue to have access to strategic facilities such as the seaport, the airport, the VOA, military bases, the Omega system, and the CIA telecommunications installation. Besides this, he was also dedicated to protecting U.S. commercial interests such as Firestone, American-owned banks, and the Liberian Maritime Registry, which we've talked so much, but really, I mean, the tentacles of the Maritime Registry stretch out very far. But anyways, Schultz and McPherson persuaded Doe to accept a team of 17 American financial experts who were deployed at the control points of the Liberian government's financial system, for example, at the Ministry of Finance and the Customs and Budget Office. Among other responsibilities, they would be required to co-sign all government documents relating to fiscal expenditures. However, the deployment of these advisors was seen by many in the Doe administration as blatant neocolonialism. Some of the experts were threatened, and the U.S. Embassy was concerned about their safety. As the tensions between advisors and the Liberian government increased, Cohen returned to Monrovia in September 1987 at the request of Ambassador Bishop to, Im- to inform Doe about the importance of cooperating with the financial management team. After Cohen's visit, the Liberian government launched a nationwide campaign of raising awareness that foreign aid and economic dependency was being used as an instrument of neocolonialism. The campaign collected money across Liberia with the message of repayment to the U.S. with the goal of becoming politically and economically independent. And yeah, I believe this policy uh, that Doe launched was called Operation Payback the United States. Emmanuel Bauer, Minister of Information, who led the campaign, stated that the U.S. Embassy reacted intensely to the campaign, which it considered as damaging U.S. interests in Liberia. As the tensions increased further, Doe made the U.S. financial experts persona non grata in Liberia. According to Bishop, in 1988, the financial experts withdrew, quote, for public consumption and stated that the program was terminated by mutual agreement. As you can see there, Doe actually, uh, for all of his faults, uh, starts to get a little more educated about neocolonialism and the U.S.-Liberia relationship, and he starts pulling some kind of, some Tolbert moves, you could say, and he gets a similar reaction. But this is usually, by the way, another thing that is not emphasized about Doe. It is emphasized how much of a sicko he was, how he ate his enemies or made them cut their ears off and made them eat them in front of him, about his brutal ethnic crackdowns, like after the Nimba raid in 1983, persecuting other tribes, being somewhat of a, I guess you could say, a Kron tribe chauvinist. But it's interesting that throughout all those horrible things in his first maybe six or seven years in power, the U.S., is completely down with him. They love it. They love Doe. But then when he starts reading Kwame Nkrumah and starts uh, chafing against the American financial advisors, that's when the U.S. uh, starts to cool to him. And especially because of this next thing, which I'm going to read from Han. As the relations with the U.S. government deteriorated, Doe cautiously approached socialist countries. In 1987, the Liberian government re-established relations with the USSR and Libya. About this time, a representative from the Republic of China, Taiwan, contacted Doe and offered him financial assistance in return for recognition of Taiwan. 
Several Liberian government officials and academics at the University of Liberia saw the move of Taiwan as a U.S.-coordinated effort to isolate Liberia at the U.N. Security Council, where the People's Republic of China held veto power. Several government officials warned Doe about recognizing Taiwan in return for a few million dollars in financial aid because it could have severe implications for Liberia if they needed to support the PRC in the UN Security Council. However, Doe accepted the offer of Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China closed its representation in Monrovia and broke diplomatic relations with Liberia. Next, in the late 1980s, several coup attempts took place. Most notable was a plot in 1988 involving both local Liberians and American citizens. This plot failed, and the Liberians that participated were immediately executed. Ramsey Clark, here we go again, former U.S. Attorney General in the Carter, actually, typo, Han, former U.S. Attorney General in the LBJ administration, he wrote Carter, traveled to Monrovia to help solve the crisis. On the promise that everybody, quote, would keep quiet about their activities, the Americans were returned to the U.S. Embassy. So there, there goes Ramsey Clark again, helpfully meddling in Liberian politics. I'd be very curious to know more about the promise that everybody keep quiet about their activities and kind of spiriting these Americans back to the U.S. Embassy and getting them out of the country after they were involved in a coup attempt against Doe at a time in 1988 where Doe was increasingly alienated from the U.S. I guess Ramsley Clark is just such a nice guy. He loves to get in the middle of these things. Who in this room does not wish to see our debt simply cancelled? If you don't, you can take the first flight to the World Bank to go and pay to the World Bank. I would like this conference to clearly declare that we cannot pay the debt. Not in a rebellious spirit, but just to avoid being assassinated individually. In Burkina Faso, I'm the only one to refuse, and I might not be in the next conference. But on the other hand, with everybody's support, and when we are saying that we should not pay the debt, we are not refusing our responsibilities or not keeping our words. It's just that we don't have the same moral standards as others. Between the rich and the poor, moral standards cannot be the same. The Bible or the Quran cannot serve those who exploit people and those exploited ones in the same way. We should have two editions of the Bible and two editions of the Quran. Brothers, with everybody's support, we will make peace at home. We will be able to use Africa's full potential as well as develop our country because our land is rich. We have enough manpower and we have a very large market. From the north to the south, to the east, to the west, we have enough brain power to create. Or at least go and learn science and technology where it can be learned from. Mr. President, let's present a united front against the debt here in Addis Ababa. Let's make sure that this conference will decide to limit the arms race between poor and weak countries. The clubs and knives that we buy are useless. Let's make sure that the African market belongs to Africans. Let's produce in Africa, manufacture in Africa, and consume in Africa. 
Let's produce what we need and consume what we produce. Instead of importing goods, Burkina Faso came here to show our locally produced cotton. Woven in Burkina Faso, tailored in Burkina Faso, to clothe our own people. I, along with my delegation, am dressed by our tailors, our farmers. Not a single thread comes from Europe or America. I'm not presenting a fashion show here, but simply I would like to say that we must accept to live the African way. It's the only way to live in freedom and with dignity. Thank you, Mr. President. Our homeland or death of, we will win. So, in the final hour here, we are going to be diving in to some significant historical events in West Africa in the late 80s that are normally not associated with the story of Charles Taylor, or if they are, it's usually as a minor tangential footnote. To some extent, that might be understandable, because as we will get to in the next chapter, the activities he engaged in once he launched his revolution sort of shocked the world. But if we're going to talk honestly about this convicted war criminal, this convicted warlord, I have my own bones to pick about the Hague trial that he got caught up in. But if I had my druthers, I might put him on trial for a different crime, one that we're going to get into right now. When I first discovered this a few years ago, I had already been researching Charles Taylor on and off for a while. And this was one of those factoids that I stumbled across that really kind of blew my mind for reasons that you are about to see. So let's answer the question, what did Charles Taylor do between 1985 and 1989? I'll start here just reading a summary that Han gives of his activities. It's cursory, but pretty much accurate, and I think it sets the right tone. And then we'll zoom in on some of the things he did, which are quite nefarious, to say the least. Han writes that, in November 1985, Taylor escaped from Plymouth County Correctional Facility in Massachusetts. There were many rumors about how he escaped, but according to Taylor, he was escorted to a minimum security area by a correctional officer during the night where he could escape through a window. Two cars were waiting outside, one with his wife and the other with two men who took him to New York. Taylor assumes that it must have been a U.S. government car because the two men would not let him drive with his wife because they feared that he could be, quote, picked up by the police. Taylor arrived in Ghana, where, according to Arnold Koinu, former general in the armed forces of Ghana, he was arrested by the Ghanaian authorities who suspected him of being a CIA spy. After diplomatic talks with the government of Burkina Faso, headed by Thomas Sankara, the Ghanaian government was assured that Taylor did not have business in Ghana as a spy. Taylor was released and traveled to Ivory Coast. In Ivory Coast, Taylor joined the NPFL, where, according to Prince Johnson, he was well-received. Because of his background, he was gradually able to overtake the leadership of the NPFL. Taylor introduced himself as, quote, brother-in-law of the Gio and Mano ethnic groups, which was supported by the fact that he was married to Towe, who was from the Geo ethnic group and daughter of the late paramount chief, 
Blazuo Towe. So I think that is maybe his, his third or fourth wife at this point. He was getting married a lot in this period. I think there was uh, there was Bernice in America. Then there was Tupi, the niece of General Thomas Quiangpa. Then there was Agnes, who assisted in getting money to help him flee the country after he would go to jail. And I actually think the daughter of Blazuo Towe. Anyways, as Taylor entered the revolutionary environment in West Africa, he ascended rapidly through the hierarchy of the MPFL and was introduced to Blaise Compare, the deputy head of state of Burkina Faso. Through Compare, he met President Thomas Sankara. Compare then introduced Taylor to Colonel Gaddafi of Libya, who entered into an agreement to train the NPFL. Now, this is an important note here, as we'll see. The details of how connections were established between different key actors are widely contested and contradictory. According to Prince Johnson, Taylor went to Sierra Leone to negotiate, quote, passage for the NPFL to invade Liberia, and he met with a Liberian called Prince Barclay, a follower of Dr. H. Boyma Fonbala, who introduced him to President Joseph Momo of Sierra Leone. In return for Momo's support, he requested that the NPFL compensate the surviving family members of the Sierra Leoneans who were executed in 1985 by Doe after the failed coup led by Kuyangpa. Momo also requested that the MPFL arrange accommodations for the, quote, 150 men from Libya and where they would stay before their invasion of Liberia. Taylor then went to France to meet with, quote, financiers and other businessmen to finance the insurgency. Now, that, that one sentence is, I think, contains multitudes, but we'll get back to it. Upon his return to Sierra Leone, President Momo was out of the country and Taylor was arrested and detained in the same cell with Corporal Fodesenko, who was completing his prison term for attempting to overthrow former President Siaka Stevens. Taylor was released two days later and asked Senko to join him in Burkina Faso after his release. Two months later, Senko came to Burkina Faso, where Taylor, quote, introduced him to President Blaise Compare, and all arrangements were put in place for a meeting with Colonel Gaddafi. In Libya, quote, a pact between Senko and Taylor was signed, where the Sierra Leone contingent would assist Taylor in removing President Doe and make him president of Liberia. In return, the Liberian government under Taylor would order the army to join Senko's group to invade Sierra Leone and install Senko as president. Now, that is the version of the story according to Prince Johnson, who we should note would later become a rival of Charles Taylor and uh, an opponent of him. So that's one version of the story. In contrast, Hahn writes, Taylor states that, quote, there was no pact with the revolutionary United Front leader, Fodesenko, for mutual assistance. Taylor did, quote, not know about the creation of the RUF in 1989, and he, quote, did not know Fodesenko. He only knew Ali Kaba and the Sierra Leone Pan-African movement. However, he did acknowledge support from Gaddafi, who for Taylor is, quote, an African hero because he assisted in the struggle to, quote, get rid of the colonial and neo-colonial rule in Africa. There are many rumors on who met who and where and what they talked about and the networks of personal connections between key actors in the political and economic environment in West Africa are complex. 
They consist of the intersection between both kinship and business interests in combination with nationalism, segments of left-wing and right-wing pan-Africanism, and identity politics, particularly concerning ethnicity and religion. These networks had a significant impact on the conflict dynamics in Liberia and the West African region. Daisy De La Fosse, who we mentioned earlier, the goddaughter of Ivorian President Houphouet Boigny and widow of A.B. Tolbert, married Blaise Compare, who then became the son-in-law of Houphouet Boigny. Doe, therefore, had two powerful enemies in Compare and Houphouet Boigny, and they both supported the Taylor-led NPFL. Regarding Houphouet Boigny and Compare, Herman Cohen claims that, quote, there would not have been a war in Liberia if these two outside powers had not sponsored it. The interests of Compare and Houphouet Boigny converged with Gaddafi's ideas of a pan-African revolution, and Libya became the center of training and coordination for the NPFL. NPFL rebels were sent to Libya, where they were trained at the former U.S. military base, Wheelis Air Base. Now, I believe that was also called the World Revolutionary Center, where they were trained. However, the NPFL was in contact with all parties who wished to remove Doe from office, in particular the U.S. government. The NPFL did not intend to be a proxy force of any government, so they sought support from multiple external sources, such as private businesses and the governments of France and the U.K. The leadership in the NPFL and the RUF, we're going to hear more about them later, by the way. They were the notorious rebel group from Sierra Leone in the 90s, led by Fode Sanko. So the question of did Taylor become friends with Sanko and where and when, etc., will assume a lot of importance uh, later in the narrative. But the leadership in the NPFL and the RUF considered themselves as pan-Africanists, but few had a socialist orientation. Pan-Africanism for them meant minimizing the influence of non-African actors in Africa. However, some leaders in both organizations added socialist rhetoric to mobilize local support for the insurgency and to recruit soldiers. The NPFL did not have a written program, but the socialist rhetoric is well reflected in the RUF's 1989 basic document of the Revolutionary United Front of Sierra Leone, the Second Liberation of Africa. This document echoes Nkrumah's anti-neocolonial struggle through a particular mixture of socialist and anarchist ideas. It begins by stating that the objective of the RUF is to, quote, liberate the economy from all forms of domination, both local and foreign, where the wealth of the land should belong to the people. The mission is an anti-neocolonial struggle for genuine independence and a contribution to the task of the total political and economic liberation and unification of Africa. In a new Sierra Leone, the RUF will decide on an economic policy that is consistent with our national and pan-Africanist interests, which will seek not to be polarized to either state capitalism or private capitalism. Okay, so kind of Trotsky alert, I guess, uh, state capitalism. Instead, they will enable, quote, a turnkey partnership with investors in the exploitation of the natural resources, which leaves no opening for anybody to claim economic hegemony over others. Tokba notes that the program was confusing and reflected internal disagreements where the text could be interpreted in any way possible by any member of the RUF. The original draft program was written in the mid-1980s by Cleo Hensilis at the University of Ghana. Hansilis was a socialist pan-Africanist inspired by Nkrumah, and the initial draft was a socialist program, which was later rewritten by RUF leadership. Now, here's where we get to the real crazy shit. Thomas Sankara, the Marxist president of Burkina Faso, 
supported the socialist groupings, but he was skeptical of the NPFL. In 1987, Prince Johnson, planning and training officer for the NPFL, noted that a problem occurred when President Sankara took a position of, quote, nonconformity of the entire plan of the NPFL. Sankara insisted that his country would not be used to destabilize Liberia and was determined to deport the NPFL from Burkina Faso. This created disagreement between Sankara and his deputy, Kampare, who, quote, came under intense pressure from his father-in-law, Hufwe Boigny, who wanted the removal of President Doe from office at all cost. According to Prince Johnson, this led to a, quote, conspiracy between Kampare and Charles Taylor, which resulted in the overthrow and death of head of state Sankara with the use of the Liberian connection. As Kampare became the new head of state of Burkina Faso, all arrangements for preparing the NPFL for the incursion into Liberia were put in place. Both Prince Johnson and Cyril Allen acknowledged that the NPFL leadership was involved in the assassination of Sankara. However, the CIA infiltrated the NPFL and convinced the NPFL leadership and Kampare that Sankara had to be assassinated. The United States wanted to get rid of Sankara because of his socialist pan-African policies, which began to materialize in Burkina Faso. So, right there, it's good that Hahn notes it because many books about Liberia just completely blow over it, but as Prince Johnson did testify in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in Liberia, and I think even before that, I think as early as 2003, he publicly claimed that they were all involved, not just Blaise Compare, who, by the way, was Thomas Sankara's best friend, right-hand man, and then assumed the presidency after Sankara was killed. Blaise Compare would go on to be the dictatorial president of Burkina Faso, I think for the next 27 years, until he was finally overthrown in 2014. And uh, I believe a few years ago actually had to flee Burkina Faso. And just a couple of months ago, in, on April 6, 2022, a court in Burkina Faso found Blaise Compare guilty for his participation in the assassination of Thomas Sankara and gave him a life sentence, although it is in absentia. Interestingly enough... He has lived in exile in Ivory Coast, where his father-in-law, Hufwe Boigny, was the longtime president. So, and now I believe is actually an Ivorian citizen, perhaps through his wife. So this trial, it was a long time coming. Obviously, Blaise Compare claimed that I think he was asleep or something when Sankara was murdered, that he had nothing to do with it. He was never believed. People always highly suspected. It was a very obvious coup. But, you know, we haven't talked too much about Thomas Sankara, and we probably don't have time to do his uh, political career true justice. But suffice it to say, he was probably the last successful galvanizing socialist leader, both in Africa and really in the world, in the waning days of the Cold War, to uh, take power in a military coup and implement a Marxist socialist uh, government with strong pan-African tendencies in 1983. So he, he was a young army officer who, with a group of other army officers, which some people actually say were trained and kind of organized and supported by Libya 
I think including Charles Taylor, says that the Sankara Revolution in 1983 was... Uh, as a result of Qaddafi's support, which I think to some degree um, seems to be true. So they took over the former French colony of Upper Volta and Sankara renamed it Burkina Faso, which I think in the uh, Burkina Bay language translates to the land of upright or honest men. I'll just read a little paragraph here from an interview with Brian J. Peterson, who is a history professor at Union College. I haven't read his book, but he wrote a book called Sankara, A Revolutionary Life and Legacy. And just for people who have no frame of reference, I'll read here his answer to who was Thomas Sankara and why is he still such an important figure in Burkina Faso. And he says, Captain Thomas Sankara was a visionary revolutionary leader in the late Cold War era in Francophone Africa. After coming to power on August 4th, 1983, through a popular insurrection and military coup d'etat, the young military officer immediately set his sights on combating social injustices, poverty, and corruption within the newly renamed Burkina Faso. He was a charismatic figure and gifted orator who fought tirelessly to improve the lives of peasants, women, and the youth. He read extensively, particularly revolutionary classics, and was deeply engaged with political debates among civilian groups. As he often said, quote, a soldier without political education is a potential criminal. Despite the fact that Sankara was a soldier, he was widely embraced because many saw his revolution as a sign that things were finally going in the right direction in Africa. He was seeking a renewal of society and leading a revolution in the true sense of the word. Many Africans, both within Burkina Faso and in neighboring countries, felt that for the first time in years, Africa had a leader with a genuine interest to the people at heart. His speeches and political actions held the kind of promise that Africans had not seen since the early years of independence. His words represented a kind of revolutionary humanism that fused socialist, pan-Africanist, feminist, and environmentalist ideas with that of the Catholic principles in which he had been raised. For many youth during the so-called lost decade of the 1980s, Sankara emerged as a powerful symbol of resistance and hope across Africa. And he goes on, as a committed pan-Africanist and vocal anti-imperialist, Sankara fought to break the neocolonial control that France still exercised over its former colonies while forging a non-aligned path during the Cold War. He opposed neoliberal reforms and attended structural adjustment programs that were sweeping across Africa at the time. And he focused on concrete ways to make his country more self-reliant, envisioning it as a truly independent nation, an equal partner in international trade and diplomacy, rather than a mere aid recipient and subservient political pawn. He was also a hugely popular figure within Burkina Faso and across Africa because he was a new kind of leader, a true man of integrity who lived modestly and refused to fall into the trap of using state power for self-enrichment. In this way, Sankara represented a radical departure from existing systems of governance in Africa, which had been fraught with corruption, growing indebtedness, and authoritarian rule. Unfortunately, just as Burkina Faso was becoming a model of sustainable development and more transparent governance, the revolution tragically ended on October 15, 1987, when Sankara, at 37 years old, was assassinated in a plot organized by his close friend, Blaise Compare. Certainly, Sankara's death was viewed as a kind of martyrdom, and it played an important role in assuring him a place in the pantheon of African political heroes alongside Patrice Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah, Amilcar Cabral, Nelson Mandela, and so forth.
he says, I think that Sankara's staying power has a lot to do with his visionary ideas and political practices. For example, he was far ahead of his time on many pressing social, political, economic, and environmental issues. Sankara took steps to liberate women long before other African heads of state considered such measures. He imposed austerity measures in a manageable way by eliminating every last privilege of governing elites while expanding education and health care. And during one of the worst droughts and famines in the West African Sahel, Sankara embraced policies aimed at enabling his country to live within its means while battling to stop the spread of the Sahara through massive reforestation campaigns. He worked to confront the perennial problem of debt in African countries and proposed building a united front to force more favorable terms. But most of all, he led a, quote, revolution of the mentalities, inspiring his people to transform their realities. In doing so, Sankara experimented with new structures and ideas of radical or direct democracy, empowering villagers to form local cooperatives and elected political bodies in which they had a voice and were able to take initiatives in improving their lives. Compared to some of the other political contemporary figures uh, that we've covered in this story so far, like, for example, Samuel Doe, Sankara really was kind of the real deal. He was a real inspirational effective, brilliant, eloquent, respected leader. But as you could probably tell just from that description of what he was trying to establish in Burkina Faso, especially trying to shake off the neo-colonial French influence that was still there, his policies pissed a lot of people in the West off. So according to one of Taylor's enemies, he and Charles Taylor were instrumental in hatching the plot with Blaise Compare to kill Thomas Sankara. But as it turns out, there's more evidence of this happening. Start to fear the other 
now sees them in their lives. Since I then young for my country. In this final part here, I'm going to lay it out for you. Now, I discovered this about five or six years ago. It's a real deep cut, but I mean, I'm by far not the first person to kind of uh, shine a light, as it were, on the Liberian connection in the Sankara assassination. But there's one particular source that I think is uh, we need to zoom in on, and that is an Italian TV documentary from 2009 called African Shadows by Silvestro Montanaro. And you can actually, you could find this video, you can find this documentary on YouTube. Unfortunately, it is dubbed in, it's most, I think the only version of it is overdubbed completely in Italian, even when they're interviewing Liberians who are speaking English. So you can't watch basically an English translated version of this. But the website pambazooka.org, which I, th- I think is a pretty good news website. Niels Hahn has written for them. Um, and also thomasankara.net reposted it in 2009. They got somebody to translate and write out the transcript of this documentary in English. And the claims that are contained in it, not only do they underline the Taylor role in the assassination, of Thomas Sankara, but they also tell us quite a bit about who may have been directing Charles Taylor to do this kind of thing. And also, just in general, what was the role that Charles Taylor was playing when he went to Libya with a group of Liberians to train this NPFL force to go back and overthrow Doe? Was this the only thing Charles Taylor was after, just to overthrow Doe? Or was he maybe working for somebody else? So I'm just going to read from Pembazooka, and I'll probably put the audio of the documentary under this, and I will effectively be overdubbing it. So strap yourself in, because this is where the dark international tentacles start to show themselves a bit. So Silvestro Montanaro writes in 2009, just a little preface, Astounding allegations have come forth about the 1987 assassination of the former president of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara, through a documentary aired on Italy's public channel, RAI3, RAI3. The documentary, entitled African Shadows, details the alleged links of the American and French secret services to Sankara's assassins and the involvement of the current president of Burkina Faso, Blaise Compare. This week's Pambazooka News brings you the striking three-part transcript of the recent documentary featuring the testimonies of well-known Liberian figures. Okay, so it starts out, he's interviewing yet another ex-wife of Charles Taylor, the Liberian Senator Jewel Howard Taylor, who may still actually be a, a sitting Liberian senator but uh, was divorced this time. Silvestro asked, This is an intriguing international issue. I am meeting with Liberian Senator Jewel Howard Taylor, ex-wife of Charles Taylor. Do you think that people should be worried if Taylor tells, quote, the truth? Should important people? Yes, absolutely. I'm sure of it. Very important people? For sure. There is a part of this story that has remained hidden, even from me. I am certain that he still holds secrets. How did he leave the U.S.? What deal did he make with Gaddafi in order to train in Libya? 
who were his friends and what information did they give him? And then this is Momo Jiba, one of Taylor's officers. He had lots of friends in the U.S. Important people? Yes, certainly. Business people. Can you give me any names? Ah, no. I cannot divulge their names. I am not a fool. He had friends in diplomatic circles who have gone underground, but I know who they are and that they would not be happy if I spoke out. Taylor did not drop out of the sky just like that, from prison to Liberia. It is them who sent him to Liberia, and they are very aware of this fact. This gentleman, also considered a war criminal by the UN, was Taylor's aide-de-camp. Today, General Momo Jiba, one of those who know the real story, gives us a glimpse of the goings-on during the reign of Charles Taylor. So he asks, who sent him there? Momo says, those who sent him know themselves. The big hand. They know everything. He did not come here alone. Taylor was in prison in the U.S., and all of a sudden he was in Monrovia. How did he get out of a U.S. prison? How was he able to escape? The CIA? <laughs> I cannot say it. A big hand. The big hand. Liberia's current minister of posts and telecommunications, Marcus Don, is also one of the country's preeminent historians. He also suspects a third force behind Taylor's escape. Don says, What happened in the U.S. with Charles Taylor is quite a remarkable story. Taylor fled Liberia after President Doe accused him of stealing millions of dollars from state coffers. He was arrested and was due for extradition to Liberia. It is noteworthy that Taylor's lawyer, Ramsey Clark, one of the best in the country, was Attorney General under Jimmy Carter. Again, LBJ, but everyone thinks it's Carter. Taylor was incarcerated at a federal prison in Massachusetts, one of the most secure. It seems to me especially difficult to escape from a federal prison. Taylor managed to escape to come back here and launch a revolution to depose Samuel Doe. Moses Blanc was Taylor's vice president and one of his top aides. When Taylor fled, he became president for a period of a few months. Blas says, it is impossible to escape from such a facility without someone's assistance. Taylor was not a little bird, neither was he God or a spirit. Many people, including some who currently occupy important posts in the government, helped us. Even our current president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, admitted to having assisted Taylor and having given him financial assistance at the time. But it was mostly the Americans. Certainly, yes. In what way? How can I explain this to you? Our godfather, since some of us Liberians consider ourselves a province of the U.S., helped us. The U.S. consented to Taylor becoming president. Cyril Allen was a leading figure in Taylor's party, former head of the National Petroleum Corporation, and is now one of the top names in the U.N. blacklist. 
He says, you must understand that the leaders of the NPFL chose Taylor. The leadership of the NPFL included the likes of Mrs. Ellen Sirleaf, the current president. They were seeking help and toppling Samuel Doe. So the Americans asked whom they had chosen to lead their revolution. Their response was immediate and unequivocal. We have a Liberian who has a bone to pick with Samuel Doe. This man has a brilliant military mind. He is intelligent and courageous. Unfortunately, he is in one of your prisons. We ask that you let him go so he can lead the revolution. They complied, and there Taylor was. They agreed? Of course, they made it possible for Taylor to escape. And now, I believe Minister Jackson Doe, no relation to Samuel, says, you need to find out from the State Department, from the highest levels of the CAA, the FBI, and the political establishment, they know what happened. Listen, I never want to find myself in the American prison system. It is practically impossible to escape. Incredibly, Taylor managed to escape. Who was Taylor's lawyer? Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General and one of the most powerful men in the world. Taylor escapes from prison in Boston, and the next thing we know, Taylor is in Africa. When Taylor got here, he had a sackload of money. We inquired into the origins of the initial 25,000 U.S. dollars. I had all this information on my computer, but unknown individuals destroyed it. Luckily, a friend of mine kept copies. One of the signatures on the document was that of the current president, Johnson Sirleaf, and the other was, well, an American. So now Silvestro talking to Momo Jibe again. Where were you trained, prepared? I was trained, please be truthful. Yes, in Libya. Who trained you? <laughs> Good question. What kind of instructors did you have? Where were they from? Which country? Please be honest. I cannot reveal that on camera. It is top secret. But there were definitely instructors. Who supplied you with arms? For combat? Yes. <laughs> the same people? No, no. It was a revolution we provided for ourselves. Nobody gave us anything. President Taylor used his own resources. The narrator says, at this point, I asked the filming crew to leave and return with a hidden television camera. So, while the camera is ostensibly off, he asks, So, who was it that trained you? <laughs> okay. I cannot tell him, because, besides, he already knows. The CIA? Yes, the CIA trained me. How about Gaddafi? Libya? Don't go there. That's politics. Unbelievable. Let's not get into that. That's politics. And they gave you money? Money? Everything. Arms? Everything. Everything. The CIA? <laughs> Don't go there. That's politics. Good heavens. You know, Momo says, they are dangerous. 
Right now, they want it kept quiet. They would not appreciate us talking about it. If we do, it would be dangerous for them. So now back to uh, speaking to Jewel Howard Taylor, his ex-wife. He asks, how is it possible that the CIA helped Taylor escape from prison? She says, I'm sure that they were involved. But after that, he was in Libya planning the war against Doe. Libya was an enemy of the U.S. She says, I believe that Taylor was nothing but a pawn in this game. The U.S. was against Libya, but at the same time was eager to overthrow Doe. It is for this reason that they needed an ally and authorized Taylor going to Libya for training to fight these people. Even before he triumphed and became president, he was in constant contact with the U.S. He was part of a scheme to topple Doe. He needed to be clear with his priorities. The Liberian question, his orientations vis-a-vis the U.S., the natural resources at stake, especially petroleum, from which the U.S. would benefit. Liberia was a strategic target, and for this reason, more important than the Libyan question. The narrator goes on. As General Momo states, Taylor was at this point working for the CIA, spying on Gaddafi, and infiltrating African liberation movements that were training in Libya. Momo says, it was a CIA operation. Silvestro says, the fact of the matter is that Taylor was working for the CIA and had been sent expressly to infiltrate African liberation movements that were training in Libya. Momo says, those are the facts. Are you sure about that? Absolutely. I was working with them, and we spoke about these issues. I'm not in the habit of lying. And how did Taylor go about spying on Gaddafi for the CIA? Momo says, one, a key area area was Burkina Faso, so Silvestro says. Taylor's mysterious escape path crosses with the fate of Thomas Sankara, the young president of Burkina Faso. Some time ago, Liberian senator and former warlord Prince Johnson told the Truth Commission that he and Taylor had been involved in Sankara's death. I approached him so he would explain the story. So this is the conversation between Prince Johnson and Silvestro. Prince says, but this is not part of what you've written here. It is part of the last question. No, it isn't. And in any case, you must stick to the agenda you prepared here. Excuse me? You cannot raise a new issue that was not mentioned before. Is it that difficult for you to answer the question? No, no, it does not work like that. So what actually happened in Burkina Faso? No, we... Once an issue has been dealt with one, two, three times... The issue of Thomas Sankara? This is getting tedious. Excuse me? I went to the Truth Commission. I gave an interview to the French media that was broadcast worldwide, and I will go on repeating what I said about Burkina Faso. I understand, but please answer the question. Right. After I spoke, the president of Burkina Faso faced all kinds of problems, he means Compare, and I do not want to end up there again. Besides, if you really want to know what happened in Burkina Faso, why don't you go there and ask President Blaise Compare? You are part of the international media. You are like a doctor to whom the truth must be told. Therefore, go to Burkina Faso, bursts out laughing. And again, the narrator says, then with the camera ostensibly off, Prince continues, 
Look, there was an international plot to get rid of this man, and if I tell you how this happened, are you aware the Secret Services could kill you? Silvestro says, an international plot because the truth would harm the current president, Blaise Compare. In 1987, when Sankara was murdered, Compare was considered his best friend. Immediately after Sankara's death, Compare said, quote, I was ill. He goes on, Momo and Cyril Allen recount to me what exactly happened. So this is uh, Cyril Allen, would, big player in the NPFL. He says, Gambian president Yaya Jamet, Blaise Kumpare, Thomas Sankara, Domingo Gingare, and Fode Senko, as well as the man from Chad, whose name I can't recall, had all been trained in Libya and were all friends. They are the ones who actually organized the Burkina Revolution and installed Sankara as president. Once in power, he set about putting in place his plans. The next thing you know, the U.S. had infiltrated the liberation movements and set about overthrowing Sankara, who was leaning too far left. The Americans were not happy with Sankara. He was talking of nationalizing his country's resources to benefit his people. He was a socialist, so he had to go. So the narrator here just uh, shows some video clips of Sankara and says kind of what we went over. He was the president of 1983 to 1987. To avoid foreign dictates, he refused aid from the IMF and the World Bank. Burkina Faso is semi-arid, hungry, indebted, and had one of the highest infant mortality rates with no hope of going it alone. He had to fight desertification, achieve food self-sufficiency, and provide health care. The new motto was two meals a day and 10 liters of water a day for all, every day. The whole country, especially women, were mobilized to achieve this goal to consume only what the country could produce on its own, without unnecessary imports and military purchases, end waste, privilege, and corruption. He led by example. Quoting Sankara here, our ministers can only fly economy, not first class. We have abolished presidential immunity and are in the process of lowering civil service salaries. There are court proceedings against those who are robbing our country, and these are taking place in public. Back to the narrator. Sankara ate millet, like the peasants in his country, traveled around in a small ordinary car, always wore traditional dress, and never had any personal property. His presidential salary was a pittance, and he shamed every other statesman in the world and at home. His example was not followed with enthusiasm. Roads, railways, schools, and hospitals were built, agricultural production grew, and desert was reclaimed. In the space of four years, the goal of two meals a day and 10 liters of water was a reality. But the specter of external debt racked up by past corrupt governments loomed. Sankara was fighting on the global stage against this new debt slavery. Sankara again. We must speak in one voice, saying this debt cannot be paid. And since I am the lone voice, I will be assassinated. We must say together we cannot pay, because we have to work to build a future for our people. If only Burkina Faso refuses to pay, I will not be here at the next conference. Silvestro says, Sankara did well, and did it for all. He called into question the delicate power dynamics of the time. It was an issue that needed to be tackled. Momo Jibe and Cyril Allen, Taylor's closest allies, recount what happened. Momo says, my boss, Charles Taylor, told me to approach Sankara for help in taking power in Liberia. In return, he offered lucrative business opportunities. 
Thomas Sankara told him he was not interested and asked him to leave the country. He told him he would not help and asked him to find another staging point for his rebellion. Gengare, who is currently Burkina Faso's Minister of Defense, Blaise Kampare, Charles Taylor, and Chad's current president, you know who he is? Yes, yes, him too. They all met in Mauritania for a whole day. And after a while, they were joined by a white man from Paris. The discussions carried on, and then there was another meeting in Libya, where the Sankara problem was discussed some more. What emerged was that if we were to use Burkina Faso as a launching pad, Sankara had to be eliminated. Blaise Kampare would become president, and he would help us. Was Gaddafi okay with the plan? Yes, yes. Please remember, this must all remain confidential. If Gaddafi helped Taylor, and France sent word that they were in support of the coup d'etat, better yet, if France provided funds and indicated they would recognize Campare's government, then all was well. Blaise told Gengare, the current Burkina Bay army chief, to avail a group of commandos, Taylor provided other troops, and the coup was staged. Was France the only country involved? France was totally involved. What about the U.S. and the CIA? I'm not sure of that. I don't want to tell you lies. Cyril Allen says, The Americans and the French sanctioned the plan. There was a CIA operative and the U.S. Embassy in Burkina Faso working closely with the Secret Service at the French Embassy, and they made the crucial decisions. So the CIA and the French Secret Service decided to eliminate Sankara. Those are the facts. Momo again says, They sent their men, some commandos, and then there was Prince Johnson and myself. We communicated by walkie-talkie. We had all the information on Sankara. When he left home, when he returned, everything was planned. Were you there? Of course, I was in Burkina Faso. I was part of the operation. And were you present when Sankara was assassinated? Of course, I was in the room when he was assassinated. What do you remember of that moment? Momo laughs. Sankara was waiting to meet Blaise Kampare? No, it was not a meeting. There were important discussions taking place. And Blaise Kampare, after seeming to have returned home at exactly midnight, was there, ready to act with the others. He entered the room, fired. Cyril Allen says, he fired the first shot. Sankara was seated, and Kampare was across the table. Then there was a second shot. Sankara sank into the chair and died. A few seconds before that, he had been speaking to Kampare. Momo says, I was right there when Thomas Sankara said, Blaze, you are my best friend. I call you my brother, and yet you assassinate me? Blaze made an irritated gesture and said something to him in French. I don't understand French very well. And then he fired a shot. Allen says, if Blaise Kampare had not shot Sankara, Gungare would have done so, and he would now be president. All this was part of America's interest in controlling Burkina Faso. Silvestre says, whatever the case, one thing is certain. The goodwill is gone, and Burkina Faso is once again one of the world's poorest countries. Now, he adds here, just at the end, as a, as a note, we do not fully believe the version of events where Sankara was assassinated at midnight in the presence of Blaise Kampare, who fired the fatal shot. In the absence of evidence to the contrary, the assassination took place between 1600 and 1700. 
However, we must remain open to this. For a long time, Liberians have been suspected to have been implicated in the death of Sankara. Up to this point, not a single Liberian had offered an explanation as to what their role was. We have serious doubts as to the veracity of this count on the day he was assassinated, but the Liberian connection is confirmed. We unearthed a fresh confirmation of the accusations against France and Libya. Of great importance here is the implication of the CIA. Neither is this the first time that Liberians have confirmed it in detail. Charles Taylor would surely have collaborated with the CIA to infiltrate African revolutionary circles. There are already several accounts that express surprise at Taylor's escape from the U.S. Shortly before the release of this documentary, Taylor himself recounted his surreal liberation escape during the special tribunal in Sierra Leone and confirmed that he had received assistance. The producer can confirm that this documentary was shot before the release of the Liberia Truth Commission report that implicates the current president and several other personalities. So there you go. This Liberian revolutionary, Charles Taylor, on his way to build up a rebel army to invade Liberia and overthrow Samuel K. Doe, along the way, happens to participate in the murder of the preeminent socialist, pan-Africanist, progressive leader in all of Africa. There is a lot of tangled shit to unpack there, but the testimony from people like Prince Johnson and General Momo Jibba, especially when they think the camera is turned off and they totally drop the facade and are like, oh yeah, no, it was a CIA operation. Like we all knew about it. Like there was a white guy who flew in from Paris to Mauritania to meet with us and plan it all. And the French were backing it and all this shit. I think that's, I think you can take that kind of shit to the bank and also saying, do you want the secret services to come kill you? If you get this information out, it is out there right now. And at least Blaise Compare has hypothetically been brought to justice. How many years later in 2022, I guess that's uh, 35 years later, Blaise Compare, his dirty deeds finally caught up with him. You could argue that Charles Taylor's dirty deeds caught up with him, but never this one. This one always gets kind of swept under the rug, and I think it's easy to see why, because Charles Taylor wasn't just acting on his own initiative. He wasn't even just acting on some kind of Libyan initiative, because that's an easy thing to draw to, that, oh, Gaddafi told them to kill him. He was operating it seems uh, quite intimately with the French and American secret services to kill off Thomas Sankara. And given what would happen next, where multiple people, including his ex-wife, attest that he was essentially uh, given the green light by the U.S. government to invade Liberia in 1989, and essentially given sort of an oral promise that the U.S. would consent to him becoming president if he can get rid of Doe. It's very hard to not look at Charles Taylor as a U.S. agent because, of course, I think as uh, as Han quite valuably pointed out earlier that by the time all this was going on, 86, 87, 88, these are the exact years where Samuel Doe starts to kind of shift in his policies quite radically from where he started out. And instead of being the ultimate steadfast pro-US America loving Cold War ally, he reestablishes relations with the Soviet Union in 1987. And actually, honestly, there were many 
very confusing kaleidoscopic angles based on the different testimony given. For one, it seems to be contradictory that Muammar Gaddafi would both train Thomas Sankara and a lot of his Pan-African contemporaries and sponsor the military coup in Upper Volta, which led to Sankara taking power. But then only four short years later, despite Thomas Sankara being an inspirational, towering figure, that he would go in and have meetings with Charles Taylor and Blaise Compare and be president of Chad and decide, you know what? We got to kill Sankara because he doesn't want the NPFL to use Burkina Faso as a staging point for the revolution. Because according to multiple people, Thomas Sankara was sussed out by Charles Taylor and he was sussed out by the NPFL. And ultimately, that's why it seems he kicked them out or basically said that you can't launch your revolution from here. Now, I could understand why President Félix Houphouët-Boigny of Ivory Coast would maybe want Sankara to be dead because he was a much more right-wing, conservative Pan-Africanist who had been in power for many, many decades and on the whole had a more cordial relationship with France than Sankara did. So you could easily see him not particularly caring uh, if Sankara gets taken out, to put it mildly, especially if that means that his son-in-law gets to be the new president of Burkina Faso. Once again, we see the, the importance of, uh, of sort of these deep sort of kinship networks and family connections actually do kind of matter in this uh, world of like West African power politics, um, as they do everywhere. But Gaddafi is, is a little more of a confusing case because I'll probably already have played the audio at this point of Charles Taylor at his war crimes trial praising Gaddafi as an African hero and said that none of the positive revolutions or insurgencies that took place in the 1980s would have happened if it wasn't for the material support that Gaddafi and Libya provided to all of these young Pan-African revolutionaries, including Thomas Sankara. So there's a real question mark in the timeline, uh, and I think I'd probably have to read more, uh, maybe more sources that are directly focused on either Gaddafi or Sankara that can kind of flesh out what was the nature of the falling out between Sankara and Gaddafi, because they both seem to be kind of on the same side, both geopolitically and ideologically. They both wanted to support Pan-African liberation movements around the continent. One thing that I could just throw out there as a hypothesis would be that for Sankara, and actually, honestly, I don't know. I know that around the time that Sankara took power, that his relations with Doe were not particularly positive or extensive. But I do wonder, none of these books actually get into it uh, too deeply, but I wonder if Doe and Sankara were having any kind of communications in the later 80s. And maybe even if Sankara or people associated with him had a kind of ideological influence on Doe. And maybe Doe was becoming, was warming up after going to college and studying the history of U.S.-Liberia relations, he starts to adopt a little bit more of an Nkrumahist attitude. And maybe he's even looking over at Burkina Faso under Sankara, and he's looking at their 
de-desertification campaigns and honestly the economic results he was able to achieve with very limited resources at the same time where Liberia had been flooded with U.S. aid dollars for the first uh, for Doe's first term yet their economy was contracting and kind of collapsing throughout the entire decade. So maybe it's possible, maybe Sankara thought that he could save Doe or he could bring Doe to the right side, you know, he could show Doe the light and pull him away from being in bed with the U.S. And thus, in 1987, when Taylor shows up, this guy who has a lot of suspicious baggage behind him already, you know, a guy who got Ramsey Clark as his lawyer, a guy who mysteriously broke out of a maximum security prison in America and somehow snuck out of the country and fled back, you know, to uh, to West Africa. This guy who was thrown in jail for eight months by the Ghanaian authorities on suspicion of being a CIA spy. And according to Han, at least, it was Sankara that helped secure his release and basically kind of vouched for him in a way and allowed him to come to Burkina for the first time where he met Kampare and Sankara and then they introduced him to Gaddafi and that's where he got he got together this group of Liberians to go and train in Libya so maybe Sankara might have been a victim of his own righteous critical paranoia in a way in that he accurately deduced that Charles Taylor was sus, he was giving off CIA vibes big time, and he was conveniently gearing up to launch a war of liberation against Samuel Doe right at the time when Doe was becoming less of a U.S. puppet and was trying to kind of break free a little bit from those invisible chains of neocolonial domination. And so... The combination of those two things, I'm not going to get kind of like I'm not going to get roped into this sus CIA plot to overthrow the first indigenous leader of Liberia, no matter even though he's done a lot of bad things and he's certainly not. He's no Sankara, to put it very mildly, but maybe there is a more peaceful solution and maybe there is a possibility for maybe some kind of political transformation and economic transformation in Liberia by cozying up to Burkina. But instead, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe Sankara's perceived intransigence and not allowing the NPFL to stage the revolution was enough to get Hufwe Bonyi and maybe even Qaddafi. Maybe this is like a psyop to get Qaddafi to sign off on getting rid of Sankara because uh, maybe Sankara was viewed as being not enough of a team player. Like it's all for one and one for all. You know, we helped you do your revolution in Burkina. So now you have to help us do the one in Liberia, even if it's being led by a sus guy who's probably like a CIA agent. And he says no. Qaddafi maybe gets persuaded to... Uh, sign off on and I don't it's also very unclear was Qaddafi aware at all that there was CIA and French intelligence backing for this plot and for that matter you know I think there might even be a little bit of shit coding going on of of Qaddafi because remember this came out these revelations did come out when Qaddafi was still alive about two years before NATO would unleash a bunch of Contras 
into that country and establish a no-fly zone and bomb their country to shit and basically hunt down Gaddafi and murder him for all kinds of uh, fucked up neocolonial reasons. So I think maybe at this time, in the news cycle of the late 2000s when Obama had just come in and stuff, I think there was a premium put on if you could tie Gaddafi to as many horrible things that had happened in Africa in the 80s and 90s as possible, then it would kind of build a little bit of a support of this guy's just such a sicko. Wouldn't it be great if we got rid of him, which is what happened. So I don't know. At the same time, I, I don't feel like the documentarians themselves, despite being from Italy, which is one of the leading countries that like had a beef with Gaddafi, I, I generally feel like Silvestro Montanaro at all feel like pretty straight shooters. I would just maybe ascribe that potential kind of ulterior motive maybe to some of the people that he interviews. I mean, also, it could be they're sort of pawning off uh, a little bit of, you know, they're kind of uh, slightly minimizing the CIA role or the French role by kind of putting it on an equal plane with like, yeah, and Gaddafi was totally behind it too. When uh, Gaddafi, maybe Gaddafi uh, consented to it, etc. But yeah, I mean, these are things that are going to pop up a lot in the next chapter, the relationship between Charles Taylor and Muammar Gaddafi and Fodesenko, the head of the RUF, and a lot of other people that trained in these Libyan training camps. Because, you know, this grand strategy, which Charles Taylor himself still kind of praises as a, as a brave and noble thing to do, to sort of seed uh, revolutionary insurgencies all throughout Africa to overthrow corrupt neocolonial regimes, it kind of does happen in the 1990s, but I don't think it plays out the way that Muammar Gaddafi intended it to. I think it ends up having some very twisted entangled and dark consequences. However, at the same time, I'm going to resist the urge, at least for now, to sort of uh, put that all in Gaddafi because I think that these conflicts were highly dynamic and even though he started them with a certain intention or he trained certain forces, as you could see by reading like the RUF's political manual, like he didn't have total control and there was not necessarily like a lot of ideological unity or uh, discipline, I'd say, in these different groups. I mean, they had all kinds of... He basically was running this World Revolutionary Center for all kinds of anti-imperialist kind of armies. I think even I read in some books that there was even a faction of the IRA that was training alongside the Liberians there in the late 80s. So, you know, he was he was kind of arming factions of the IRA, which is kind of interesting. And uh, obviously like a Palestinian resistance, all kinds of liberation movements across Africa. And, you know, this is also we'll see it more in the subsequent episode. This is also in the twilight days of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. So Gaddafi is really one of the pillars of the non-aligned movement, which is very strong in Africa. I think there are a lot of positive aspects of the non-aligned movement, but they did have different member nations within it. Varying levels of hostility to, you know, actually existing 
uh, socialist countries at the time. Some of them were relatively anti-Soviet. Some of them uh, perhaps were more uh, anti-Chinese, etc. And I think that there was just a lot of, um, I mean, Gaddafi did have his green book and a certain level of sort of his own philosophy, but it, it doesn't appear that he really cared so much about imposing that ideology on people that trained in his camp, as long as they were dedicated to kind of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, etc. So I don't know. I mean, I think that what seems to have ended up happening is that his revolution, his world revolutionary center in Libya got infiltrated by the CIA, got infiltrated by the very pan-Africanists who he was training to uh, kick out governments like the U.S. in Africa and reduce their influence. So it does seem that that's really what Charles Taylor was doing. It also seems in a dark and twisted kind of way that participating in the betrayal and assassination of Thomas Sankara, I would almost describe it as kind of like an underworld initiation or even a quid pro quo and also a show of loyalty because one element of the taylor Kampare plot to kill Sankara was, okay, you want to be president of Liberia? You want to have an army and go in there and overthrow Doe and become president? Okay, we'll help you. But first, you got to do us a favor. And the favor was killing Thomas Sankara for the CIA. The other thing I'll mention, I'm pretty positive that this was in Prince Johnson's testimony at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But he told an anecdote about the day that Sankara died that is eerily familiar to the 1980 doku where apparently somebody came to Prince Johnson and the Liberian guys and said, oh my God, you guys, uh, Thomas Sankara, he has decided that all of you are sus and you're bad and he doesn't want to support you anymore. And we just learned that he is about to, he's going to arrest all of you Liberians and deport you back to Monrovia so that Doe can basically have his way and execute all of you. And like, he's literally going to do it like later today. So we got to kill him right now. There's no time. Don't think, just do it. And that's very similar to what uh, I guess somebody told the PRC officers in 1980 was that, oh, we just heard that President Tolbert, in a day or two, he's going to take all these political activist guys that you've become friends with uh, that were involved in the rice riots, he's going to take them out and he's going to execute them publicly on the anniversary of the rice riots to send a message, so we got to do it now. Don't think. Just go in there. Kill the president. So you can see that even, I think, there's definitely complex conspiring going on with various actors, but oftentimes, like, the trigger people who usually often get enshrined as like in the mainstream history is like, they're the people who did it. Don't look any further. But those people often in a way get kind of psyoped or manipulated into go do it, do it now. You got to kill him. He's going to, he's about to betray all of you. Whereas I don't think there's any evidence actually that Sankara ever intended to detain any of these Liberians and send them back to Doe. He did basically tell Charles Taylor to get out of his country and go somewhere else. Uh, so perhaps was going to deport him, but not deport him to Liberia 
where he would probably be killed. So again, it's like somebody's getting in there and manipulating people and playing games and spreading disinformation and getting people to murder probably the greatest uh, Pan-African leader, certainly I think of the 1980s in Africa. And one of the greatest kind of socialist leaders in maybe the whole world, maybe the most inspirational socialist revolutionary leader in the late 1980s in you know, the dregs of perestroika, Thomas Sankara stood tall. So with Sankara out of the way, Taylor is finally able to gather up his men and a certain level of munitions and finally make his big move to take out Samuel Doe. And just to close here, I'm just going to read a paragraph from Stephen Ellis's The Mask of Anarchy. On December 24th, 1989, 100 fighters moved over the border from Cote d'Ivoire to attack government officials and soldiers in the town of Batuo in Nimba County. Despite the rumors which had been filling the air, the attack took most Liberians by surprise. News reached Monrovia during the Christmas holiday when people had other things on their minds. A strange story circulated, which many Monrovians took to be yet another disturbing portent. It was said that a woman had given birth to a baby, which immediately began to talk in English, predicting that a deadly rain would fall on Christmas Day. The baby pronounced that it did not wish to live in such a violent world, at which point, quote, the precocious child gave up the ghost and returned to the dead, according to one Liberian journalist. Consequently, when the news of the Batua attack reached Monrovia, although many were skeptical, a large number linked the deadly rain story with the Nimba incursion. Those who turned their radios to the BBC World Service's Focus on Africa, West Africa's favorite news program, on New Year's Day, Charles Taylor claimed the border attack on behalf of the NPFL and announced that insurgent forces had also penetrated Monrovia. He said that he had no personal political ambition, but that the people should take up arms. The NPFL, he said, was going to get, quote, that boy Doe off the backs of the Liberian people.